What a blessing it is to think that God has done a great miraculous work in our hearts, those of us who are Christians. Paul describes the work that God has done in us as analogous to creation. When God said, let there be light, and there was light, that God has shown into our hearts the the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so I think those of us who are Christians this morning sometimes forget the wonderful, miraculous thing it is that God would take our hearts that were cold to these things we've been singing. I mean, you can probably look back and remember times you went to church before you became a Christian, maybe, some of us. And you can think, these words, these ideas, your heart was just cold to these things. There was no real life in you. There was no uh, impact of these things. And now, after God has changed your heart, you uh, experience that power that he is at work in you. He's given you a new heart. He circumcised you. He has shined his light into your heart. And we have been changed. And so what a miracle it is. We're seeing a miracle of God as we come together this morning and worship him. With new hearts. With our, we, we brought our new hearts here with us. And with our new hearts, we're praising him. And that in and of itself is a miracle. God does not need to part uh, the sea this afternoon. He has already done a greater work in each of us. So we praise him for that. Please go with me to Genesis 21, if you will. I'm going to move one of these because I will certainly knock it over. Genesis chapter 21, if you will. Today we come to a very special passage in our journey through Genesis. So far, we could call it Fulfillment Day. This is a real high point. Fulfillment Day, the birth of the promised child. This is Fulfillment Day in some respect, really in, in two respects. Uh, One, this is the beginning of the line, and this is the continuation of the line. So remember, we haven't had a a, a child of promise born since chapter 12. And so this marks the kind of beginning of something. This is the beginning of the line that will lead to Christ. And Matthew will go back to Abraham in his genealogy, Matthew chapter 1. He'll show that Jesus is the son of Abraham, the son of David. And so this is the line that begins with the son of Abraham, Isaac. But those of us who have been going through Genesis now for a while and we've seen the story unfold, we recognize that this is just a continuation This is not the beginning in a strict sense. This is a continuation of what we discovered with all of those genealogies at the beginning of Genesis. When we were promised a a seed who would crush the head of the devil at the beginning in Genesis chapter 3. And then we were going through those early chapters and we encountered those genealogies. And there we saw that God was working through these genealogies to bring about the seed of the woman, the offspring of Eve, Who would forever destroy the devil. And so it's a continuation that leads to Christ. And it is really a beginning too that leads to our Savior. We have been following this person Abram or Abraham since Genesis chapter 12. 
where God called him and made grand promises to him. So if you will, kind of have your Bible ready. We're going to take a little, a little trip backwards briefly here in the introduction and just see some things that will help fill out for us what the significance of what we come to today. Because you, you can't just go through a passage like we're going to look at today without feeling the significance of it. And you won't feel the significance of it if you don't see how the story has progressed up to this point, at least to some degree. So look at Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. God calls Abraham. He promises things to him. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then we go down to verse 7 there in chapter 12. And it says, to your offspring, I will give this land. And so throughout these verses, in this very short space, this very small space, we get God heaping up, as I've said before, heaping up these promises on Abram or Abraham later. His name will be changed to Abraham. And the key word... If you're looking at chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, the key word is blessing. We see that idea repeated. Abram will be blessed and he will be a blessing. So God will heap up all these blessings on him. And through Abram, God will heap up all these blessings on people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. And later that language becomes more explicit through your offspring. So Abram will be a ble- he will be blessed and will be a blessing. And from chapter 12 onwards, we see God coming to Abraham to both clarify and confirm these promises through covenant. Now, one of the impressions that you may have gotten up to this point as we've been going through Genesis is, man, this is so repetitive. I mean, it's the same stuff over and over and over again. God's coming to Abraham again. Okay, we've been there. We've seen that. God's telling Abraham what he's going to do for him. We've been there. We've seen that uh, third time, fourth time, and so forth. Lots of repetition throughout these chapters. Why is that? Well, God is clarifying more and more what he's going to do in Abraham's life. And he is confirming what he's going to do in Abraham's life. What that tells us is that God is a God who, who carries us along through the covenantal life, if that makes sense. God comes and makes a covenant with us, and he doesn't just leave us and say, now figure it out yourself. You better obey me, and you better trust me, but just figure it out yourself. No, he guides us every step of the way with his covenant-keeping love. And that's exactly what we've seen. All of the repetition should have that effect on our hearts. It should remind us that God is constantly reiterating constantly coming back to us wherever we are. When we stray, when we don't stray, he comes back to us and meets us where we are. But that's what's been going on. God's been clarifying and confirming. But everything hinges on an heir. Everything. You can't read the promises that God makes to Abram without saying, okay, where's the child? And in fact, all of that is meant to flow out of what I just discussed before. Up to Abraham, where's this child? We need another son. 
And particularly in Abram's case, all these promises that, that, are, that are hinging on a child to be born to him. God is talking about offspring as many as the dust of the earth and the stars of heaven. And can we just get one? I mean, that many, great. God's going to do this great thing, but we just need one. That's the tension of all of these chapters as we've been following this story. We see this tension coming to the surface in chapter 15. It's explicit in Abraham's voice. It says in verse 2, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. It's this guy in his house, this servant in his house, this lead servant. Do you remember when, when uh, Abraham sends the servant back to his father's house to get a wife for his son Isaac? That will come a little bit later, but he has his sort of lead servant go back and do that. That is what Eli- Eliezer of Damascus is. He's, he's portrayed as kind of the head guy in Abraham's house. Abraham doesn't have a son, but he has some servants, and this is kind of his right-hand servant. His most loyal servant. This guy, Lord, you could do all this. Dust, stars through this guy. Right? He thinks that maybe this guy will be the heir. And that's human thinking, right? We do that. Yeah, God can do that, but, you know, this way. This common way. This very natural way. Then God responds to him with a big fat no. Verse 4, chapter 15, no. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Okay? So now, Abram knows that he will have a child despite his old age. Abram, at this point, is between 75 and 86. So at this stage, as we're reading this in chapter 15, he's, he's between those two ages. He's 75 years old when God calls him out of Mesopotamia. And we know he's 86 years old when uh, the, the thing happens with Hagar. And so at some point between 75 years old and 86 years old, this conversation is happening with the Lord. God says, you're going to have a son, a natural born son. But what about his wife, Sarah? He's getting older. Sarah's 10 years behind him. She's getting older. But even more, Sarah can't have children. She's barren. And in fact, when we're introduced to Sarai at the very beginning of the narrative in Genesis chapter 11, at the end of chapter 11, she's introduced as the barren one. That's, that's it. We don't get any other information about her, really. She's the barren wife. And so, what about her? Sarah comes up with a plan. In chapter 16, in her, in her folly, in her weakness, she schemes. Look at Chapter 16, verses 1 to 2 with me. As we just sort of trace this through. 1 to 2. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So what Sarah does is she says, you know, I can't have children, but there's a common practice where I'm from and all throughout the ancient world where uh, a woman who can't have children will just take her servant, put her in her place, and, 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 and uh, there would be uh, a child through that servant, and that child would be kind of in a technical, in a, in a legal sense, 
the child of, of the woman, of the mistress, the one over the servant. So this is Sarai's plan. So Abram and Sarai's servant have a child together, Hagar. They have a child together, and that child is named Ishmael. And chapter 16 describes how this becomes a major point of contention rather than consolation. Uh, Sarai thinks, I'll do this, and this will work out great. And uh, Abraham will have his son. Abraham will have his son, and and, and I'll have uh, a son through my, my servant, and everyone will be happy. And that's the absolute last thing that happens as you read that chapter. It's just tension, and it's fighting, and it is hatred, and quarreling, and all of that wrapped up into just a very few verses. Sarai and Abram were doing their own thing. They were not waiting on the God of promise. They were trying to solve the problem and fulfill the promises themselves. So that's chapter 16. And then we moved into chapter 17, where God makes explicit that Abram's heir will come from none other than his wife, Sarah. This is where I've been getting you. God makes all these promises dependent on an heir, not his servant, his own son, and not the son of another lady, the son of his wife, Sarah. This is what God says. Chapter 17, verses 19 to 21. God said, no. But Sarah... Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac Whom Sarah, listen, whom Sarah, whom Sarah, barren one, shall bear to you at this time next year. So God has been working in Abraham's life, confirming and clarifying these promises. And when we get to chapter 17, he says, Abraham, it's going to be Sarah's son too. And then in chapter 18, the Lord comes to the tent of Abraham and says the same thing again for Sarah's ears. So now Abraham and Sarah know that God is going to give the two of them together a son, the child of promise. 25 years after God initially promised. Are we willing to wait that long for the Lord to do his work in our lives? 25 years. So you're reading this maybe in your pride. And you look at Abraham and you see his faltering and his folly and you see what Sarah did and you think, oh my goodness. If only they were a Christian like me. If only they trusted the Lord like me. 25 years he waited for God to fulfill his promise. And that's what we come to today. As we come to Genesis 21, as we come to fulfillment day, The spotlight falls on these two sons. These two sons. And that's the title of the sermon this morning, The Two Sons. You'll see this in the bulletin. And today is just going to be part one. Today we're just going to be looking at Isaac. But you'll see there the two points we'll cover in the next, uh, this week and next week. And the first is Isaac enters. And secondly, Ishmael exits. Isaac, the child of divine promise, enters the scene. 
in chapter 21. And Ishmael, the child of the flesh, of human ingenuity, of human self-reliance, of faithlessness, exits the scene so that God can get about the work of building a nation and bringing about his Christ and bringing us to be children of Abraham. This is our story, people. This is our story. This is not someone else's story. This is not the story just of Jewish people. This is not the story just of ancient people. This is the story of each one of us gathered in this room today who worship God and call him father. This is our story. When we are with Christ in a new heaven and a new earth, we will with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, And all of their descendants, we will be worshiping God for these things. Because God, I'm convinced, will look at Abraham on that day and will say, See, as many as the stars of heaven, as many as the grains of sand on the ground. Do you see my faithfulness? And forever, Abraham and all of his descendants, by faith, those who have trusted in Christ, descendants of Abraham will worship God for these things forever. So let's see this as our story. If you will, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. We'll read all, well, not all, but we'll read Genesis 21, 1 to 21, because I want you to go ahead and get Isaac and Ishmael in view, but we're just going to be looking at the first seven verses today as we focus in on Isaac. So let's read through this. This is God's perfect and profitable word for his people. Genesis 21, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah As he had promised, and Sarah, see how many times her name appears here. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing or mocking. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and skin of water, a skin of water, and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. 
And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. This is God's word. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray this morning. Ask for God's blessing on our time and ask that he would reveal himself to us as he has objectively done, but that we would, he would illuminate his word for us, that we would see what he has revealed to us here in these holy pages. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your scripture. We thank you for the opportunity we have to sit under it We pray, God, that it would do its work in us this morning. We know that your word does not return void. You said, let there be light, and there was light. God, we pray that your word would go out this morning into our hearts, and it would do its work, that you would continue to sanctify us for your glory, for the growth of your kingdom, for your will being done on earth as it is in heaven, and that you would magnify your holy name, that your name would be hallowed this morning in our hearts, that we would see you as the glorious God that you are. We would bow before you and we would obey you because we trust you. Father, we, we know that you provide our, our needs. You provide for our needs. You remind us of this in Matthew chapter 6 when Jesus says, if God will take care of flowers and birds, will he not take care of you? How much, of how much more value than birds and flowers are you? Oh, you of little faith. Father, we pray that we would heed those words of Jesus, that we would seek first your kingdom and your righteousness and trust that all our daily bread would be added to us, that you would take care of us in whatever it is we need, God. Father, we ask that you would protect us from sin. We ask that you would forgive us and help us be those who forgive others, that you would be merciful to us this morning. There are sins in our lives that we can't even see. Father, there is a web of idolatries, a web of selfishness, a web of neglect and laziness, all kinds of folly wrapped up in our hearts, God. And we ask that you would forgive us as we know you have through Christ, that Christ came and purchased for us on the cross those who would trust in him. He purchased for us a new heart and a pure life before you. So God, we pray that you would expose these these sins to our eyes, that we would turn from them and repent, that we would follow you. We pray you would protect us from the devil. We know we have a mighty foe who desires to wreak havoc on our lives. 
prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Father, we pray that you would crush him in our lives. We know that you have crushed him at the cross. One day you will throw him into the lake of fire forever. But we pray that you would functionally, practically, daily crush him in our lives. That we would put on your armor. That we would fight him. That we would get a hold of him with the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. That we would protect ourselves with the shield of faith. Lord, help us grow in our faith through a passage like what we see today. Help us trust in you, the God of promise. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, we're going to spend our time looking at Isaac enters. This verses 1 to 7, so we can go ahead and camp out there. Chapter 21, verses 1 to 7. In verses 1 to 7, we have a climactic event. As I've said before, this is really a climax. We know, and, and, and by the way, I don't know if you've read ahead, but in the next chapter... What is God going to do? He's going to come to Abraham. He's going to say, I want you to sacrifice Isaac. So you see, this is, if, we, if we feel the weight of chapter 21, we'll be able to feel the weight of chapter 22. We have to see the significance of this. We have to see the joy. We have to see the fulfillment. And then we get chapter 22, sacrifice him. What? It's incredible how these two chapters fit together. But that's for a later time. Today we get this climax, the birth of Isaac. The reader has been waiting for this moment for quite some time. And as we would expect, these verses are rich with theology, truth about God. I think these verses, verses 1 to 7, teach us four major theological truths about God. And as these kind of came up clearly from the text this week for me, that was what motivated me just to camp out on these verses alone and not to go ahead and take on the Ishmael part, but to just let these truths that we find here, these major theological truths, settle on our hearts because of their significance. We find four major truths about God, about the God of the Bible, about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, about the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, about the God whom we call every time we pray, Abba, Heavenly Father. Truths about Him, your Father, Christian. Truths about this God. But before I give you these four bedrock truths about God, before we begin to look at these, which I think arise just right out of the text, I want to make a comment about the intersection of church and theology. This is very very important, I think, in our day and age. And I've said some things about this in the past, but I just want to take this opportunity to camp out for a moment on this idea, the intersection of church and theology. I want to give you a statement, and then I want to think about your reaction to this statement. Church is about theology. Church is about theology. So when I say that, I would venture that that probably makes a lot of us a little bit uncomfortable. Maybe just a little bit uncomfortable. I know that if you say that kind of broadly out, maybe not here, but you say that broadly out, that might make us a little bit uncomfortable when we say church is about 
theology. You could extend that. The Christian life is about theology. Church is about theology. Everything is about theology. Why is it that that makes us a little bit uncomfortable when we hear that? Or you could even say church is about doctrine. You could use that in place of theology. Why is it that that makes us a little bit uncomfortable? Maybe that's not you, but why does that make a number of people uncomfortable? I think there are three reasons why that is the case. And by the way, the reason I'm going down this little road is because what we find in this text are four major Christian truths that we're going to look at in a minute. But I want to circle back behind that for a moment and think about this idea of Christian truth, of theology, and the church. So why? Why does this statement, church is about theology, make us uncomfortable? The first reason is because we wrongly define theology. That's the first reason that might make you uncomfortable. I've had this conversation with people before. You know, we don't need theology and doctrine. What we need is dot, dot, dot. Fill in the blank. Whatever it is. That's not, we don't need theology. We don't need doctrine. What they mean by that, and the reason why I think sometimes we think this way, is because we wrongly define what theology is. We see theology as this very stuffy academic discipline in a seminary or a university where a person is studying all these weird words that, that, that are over categories. So what is theology? It's the splitting hairs and categorizing everything and, and delineating everything and giving everything a label. And so you've got these massive textbooks, and that's theology. That's not what we need. That's too academic. That's too stuffy. Well, part of the reason there is because the person has misdefined theology. Theology is God's truth about himself that bears on our lives. That's theology. And if that's true, then all of church is theology. All of church is about theology. Who is God and what does that mean for my life? So that's the first reason we wrongly define it. The second reason, I think, is because our Christian subculture has made church about an experience rather than knowing truth. So let me say that again. It is the case that today, in the Christian subculture bubble of American evangelicalism, that by and large, church is about an experience. That's why churches are attractional. That's why churches are seeker-friendly. That's why the music has to just be just right, and lights, and fog machines, and all that other rubbish. It's all about an experience. It's about men creating an experience that will then be fulfilling. And they'll come back. Right, Just like when you go to a nice restaurant and the chef creates an experience for you by a really tasty steak or something else. You say, I've got to go back there. That was a great experience. And so we want to go back to that experience. That's what, that's what we're a product of. We see that in our devotional lives, right? Just open the Bible and just find a passage. And if God doesn't speak to me, if God doesn't speak to me this morning, right where I'm at in my situation, then I'm just closing the Bible and moving on. So occasional. It's so superficial. It's so experiential. The alternative is knowing truth. Let me give you an example of why we understand church to be about knowing truth. Listen to Paul's greeting. This is the very first verse of Titus. This is what he says. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now listen to this. His servanthood to God, his apostleship 
for the sake of, listen, why is he doing this? Why is he writing? Why is he apostle? Why is he writing a letter? What's he about? For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness. That's what church is about. That's why we listen to sermons. That's why we read our Bibles in the morning. That's why we talk to one another about the Christian life. That's why we sing praise songs for this reason. So that's the second reason that I think someone might respond that way. Thirdly, because in every heart, there is an individualistic self-centeredness that wants to make everything about me. Let me say it this way. Me and my experiences and fulfillment in life move into the center of the circle and God and who he is and his character and his glory and his wondrous deeds, which the psalmist says we must tell to the next generation, those things move out of the center and me and my fulfillment and my experiences move to the bullseye. That's why I read the Bible. That's why I pray because it feels good. It's all about me. When it doesn't feel good, I don't do it. When it does feel good, I'll do it. When it doesn't feel good, I won't go. When it does feel good, I'll go. Tossed to and fro by every wind and wave. You know, if we want to get out of a stagnant Christian life, we need to put truth at the center and start praising God for who he is. Just start praising God for who he is. Not focused on your experience. You're dry. Maybe you're dry this morning. You're not feeling close to the Lord. You feel very far from him. What do I do? What do I do? It's not seeking an experience. It is taking the truth of this God of the Bible. What we're going to see in just a moment, these wonderful basic truths of the God of the Bible, putting them in the center and meditating on those and praising him for them. You start doing that, you're going you're to experience God in a real way, not in a superficial kind of of way. So here we are in Genesis 21, one of the most significant fulfillment passages we've come across so far, and we see that the God of the Bible wants to tell us about himself. Just in these 7 verses, what he is like, what he does. So what do we find here? Four things that come right out of the text and here they are. Here are the four things I want you to see this morning. God meets his people God keeps his promises, God accomplishes his purposes, and God establishes his praise. These are essential, fundamental truths. And they're right here, just coming up out of this fulfillment passage. These are the kinds of truths that you can build life on. These are the kinds of truths that you can get through cancer with. These are the kinds of truths that you can endure the death of a loved one with. This is what church is about. Magnifying God in these things. So these four truths, these are some of the most glorious and basic truths about God found in the Bible. And so we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at them. So look with me first at God meets his people. Basic idea here comes right out of the text. God meets his people. Look at verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. This verb, to visit, essentially means to show attentive care or concern for. That's the idea conveyed by this Hebrew verb. To come to someone in a gracious way. And in fact, the NIV translators 
translate this verse, the Lord was gracious to Sarah. So if you have an NIV Bible, you'll read that. That's the idea conveyed, to come to in a gracious way, to care for, to be attentive to, show concern for. We see this in Exodus chapter 4, verse 31. The people of God are enslaved in Egypt. They are shackled down by the Egyptians. And Moses and Aaron come in and say, this is what God's going to do for you. This is what God has said. This is what God has observed. And he's going to do this great work for you. This is what it says. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited, same Hebrew word, had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. God visited his people then. He visited Sarah here and he visits us Every day. He visits his people. We've seen repeatedly how God cares for his people. We were introduced, introduced to this in the Garden of Eden. We had paradise, beautiful trees, appetizing food, marital love, a life of purpose and fulfilling work. We saw his gracious response to the fall. I mean, God had done all these things for Adam and Eve. And they don't trust his goodness. They let Satan come in and lie to them about his goodness, about his word, his authority. He is the king. And they've rebelled against the king. They deserve to be executed on the spot. What does God do? He makes coverings for them. He gives them a promise. We've seen God come to his people in their sinfulness. We saw him accept the sacrifice of Abel, take Enoch up into heaven, and shut the door for Noah and his family. One of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. And God shut the door. It's incredible. He came to to his people. We saw him disperse the nations at the Tower of Babel so that they would not destroy themselves in their selfish idolatry. We saw him graciously come to Abraham and take him out of a pagan family and culture and enter into a covenant with him. On numerous occasions, we've seen him come and appear to Abraham. We've seen him have a meal with him and speak with him as a friend and accept his intercession on behalf of a sinful city. All of this. The God of Abraham. Our God is one who meets his people. He comes to us. He visits with us. Recently, I was talking to one of uh, the guys in our church here. Won't say names or anything, but he was going to, he's been going through something difficult in his life, something challenging. And we were talking a little, a little bit about his response to this, to this challenging ordeal. And what he said was, you know, had this happened to me a while ago, I would have been, I would have been distraught. I would have, I mean, not necessarily distraught, but it would have been hard. It would have been difficult. I would have, it would have really been a challenge. But what he said was that as we've been going through the book of Genesis, he's been seeing God's character. He's been seeing who God is. He's been doing theology and seeing this God of the Bible as he reveals himself in the pages of the Bible. And as this recent event in his life has come, he's just found such peace and rest in it and even joy in the midst of it. Why? Because he knows God and he's seen God and he trusts God because God does that through his word. Theology pressed in on the heart makes a life like that for us. Time after time after time. God meets his people and we need to know it. 
every day. You need to be reminded of it every single day. Second, God keeps his promises. Basic, basic truth right here. It's in the text. God meets his people. God keeps his promises. Look at the rest of verse 1. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. But in general, I want to look at the language of verses 1 to 2. So look at verses 1 to 2. I'm going to read through it really quickly. I want you to see this. Sometimes reading through something quickly actually helps you see things better. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old, old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Do you see that? As God had said, as God had promised, as God had spoken to him. You can't read verses 1 to 2 without saying these verses are about the word of God. And it's integrity, reliability, truthfulness, veracity, whatever word like that you want to attach to it. The emphasis here is God's word. As Christians, we are people of the word. We are people of the word. Uh, if, if the world wants to say, you guys are Bible thumpers, whatever. Use your, your, your slurs or, or use your, your criticism. That's fine because we are. The word of God is our life. We are like trees planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. As the psalmist says in Psalm 1, the word of God is everything to us. We cling to it just as Sarah and Abraham did. You see the word here? We have it written, inscripturated in the Bible, and that is the basis for all of our lives. We are people of the word. It is impossible to be God's people and not be people of the word. These liberal denominations and liberal theologies that make little of scripture but pretend to make much of God, it's false. It's not true. It's hypocritical. Those who trust God, trust his word. Those who cling to God, cling to his word. Those who build their lives on God, build their lives on his word. You see that throughout scripture. We see it here with this couple. There is much in our lives that is shaky. Everything is shaky. Our health is shaky. Our relationships are shaky. Our job security is shaky. Our happiness from moment to moment is shaky. What our kids will grow up to do and be, shaky. Life is shaky at every level. But God's word never fails. We can count on every one of his promises. Every promise of his word as we just sung. It's incredible how that happens. I didn't Ask them to choose that song or anything, but that's the truth of it. We can count on every one of his promises. Let me read you two passages of scripture to this effect. Numbers 23, 19. God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said and he and will he not do it or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Has he said and will he not do it or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? The answer is, of course he'll do it. If he has said it, he will do it. Titus 1, 2, the next verse after the one I read you a moment ago, says, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Let me put this before you. And this is incredible. If you're, uh, this edified me significantly this week. As we look at the picture of baby Isaac, we are looking at, at a picture of our future glory. Here's what I mean. 
just as sure as God made all these promises and guided Abraham to this point from chapter 12 to chapter 21. And now, boom, we've got the birth of Isaac. There he is. That is exactly what's going to happen with each of us. God made a promise to us. He converted us. He gave us his grace. And he is guiding us through this life, through much folly on our part, as with Abraham. He's guiding us through this life. And just as sure as that baby was born, we will reign with Christ. We will be raised. We will be glorified. We will live with him forever. It cannot not happen. It will happen. It will certainly happen. And in this life, throughout Scripture, he promises to meet our needs, work everything out for our good, give us peace when we ask him, and bring us home at the end of our journey, our pilgrimage through life. Every promise of his word. So we see that God meets his people. We see that he keeps his promises. Thirdly, we see that God accomplishes his purposes. Look at verse 2. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. God had made a promise. He had protected that promise from being compromised in the case of Abimelech. And now we see that he fulfills the promise with precision, precision at the time of which God had spoken to him. Not just a general fulfillment, not just yet. Yeah, at some point, you're going to have a child at this time next year. And at that time next year, he had Isaac. This tells us that God's purposes cannot be thwarted. Nothing can stand in his way. He is sovereignly in control. Listen to this. This is the wonder of God's sovereignty. He's even sovereign over our sins. And we don't understand how that works. We don't understand it. But the Bible declares very clearly that what happened at the cross, as Peter says in Acts chapter 2, what happened at the cross was ordained by God. How is it that it was ordained by God that Judas betrayed Jesus? That Herod, that sinful men like Herod and Pilate, particularly Pilate, would put Jesus to death. That the religious leaders would be blinded and they would not see Christ's glory. And they would put him to death. How is that the case? It was ordained by God. Which means that even human sin, as hard as that is for us to understand, as hard as that is for us to wrap our minds around, even human sin is under the sovereign ordaining control of God in a way that we cannot understand. Nothing can stand in the way of God's purposes in our lives. He who began a good work in you will complete it. He will bring it to its destination. This is the God of the Bible. Isaiah 14, 27 says this about God. Listen to these words about the Lord. For the Lord of hosts has purposes and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out and who will turn it back? Nobody. Nobody can turn back the hand of this mighty God. Isaiah also says in 46, 9 to 10, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. 
I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, listen to this, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Nothing can stand in his way. So we see God accomplishes his purposes in his timing, and that's what we read in these Verses. That's a bedrock truth of the Bible. If we don't get that God keeps his promises, we don't get that God's in control, we don't get that God is Emmanuel with us, he meets his people where we're at, what do we have? Nothing. Finally, fourthly, God establishes his praise. Sola Deo Gloria. Look at verses three to seven. Verses three to seven. Abraham called the name of his son, who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. What do we see here in these verses? There's a lot of little bits here, but I'm going to give you the big idea. What we see here is God establishing his praise. And he does this, I think, in two ways. First, through the human response. He does all this word keeping. He does all of this purpose keeping. He does all this work, this visiting for this human response. The response of praise. We get it in two ways. The praise of obedience. Abraham names his son Isaac as God had told him. And what does Abraham do? He circumcises his son as God had commanded him. He obeys the Lord. So we see the praise of obedience. And then we see the praise of rejoicing and crediting it back to God. Sarah in verse 6. God has made laughter for me. God has made laughter for me. Who did this? God did it. She's rejoicing. She's extolling God. She's saying, God did this. Not man. God did this. And Abraham, in his obedience, is praising God. This is how God is glorified in our lives, by the way. You think, how do I glorify God? How do I praise God? How do I follow God? These are two very clear ways in response to who God is and what he has done. What do we see Abraham doing? Obeying God. And what do we see Sarah doing? Extolling God. We obey him. That's how we praise him. Loving God and obeying God are one. We don't love him and disobey him. We love him. We obey him. We love him by obeying him. And that's what Abraham does. That's what Sarah does as she credits it back to him. So that's the first way we see God establishing his praise. The second is through the repeated elements in the text. So you have to see this. These elements, these repeated elements in these verses draw attention to the fact that God has done the impossible. So let me give you these three repeated elements. The first is the age of Abraham. We get that repeated, the beginning and at the end. The text wants to remind you, Abraham is old, very old, too old to be having children. Only God could do it. The second thing that's repeated is the fact that this child came through Sarah in particular. I saw, I showed you earlier. Sarah, 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 the one who bore. 
the one who bore. It's repeated. What's the text saying? Sarah, the barren one, gave birth. Only God could do it. Abraham's old. Only God could do it. Sarah gave birth. Only God could do it. And then thirdly, we see the name Isaac mentioned. Repeated all throughout these verses. Why? Because Isaac's name means he laughs. Reminding us that when Abraham and Sarah heard God's promise that Sarah would conceive, they both laughed. Now, Sarah's rebuked for her laugh because it's kind of an unbelieving laugh. Abraham seems to be laughing in this kind of joyful exuberance like, really, God? But they both laugh. In other words, God has done the laughable. And Isaac's name is a constant reminder that only God can do the laughable. Only God can do the impossible. Only God can bring a child to a 90-year-old barren woman or to a 100-year-old Abraham. Only God. God is glorified most when it is clear that only he could have done it. And here's the thing. That means much weakness for us. It's frustrating. It's frustrating that we have to try so hard sometimes to do things we want to do. It's hard sometimes that things we want to do and accomplish for the Lord don't come as naturally to us as we would like. It's hard that we actually have to see ourselves on our face and on our uh, just laid out because we just feel so incompetent and incapable. That's no fun. Everybody wants to find the rhythm, find their way, and just upward slope. Just excel. We all want to excel. And yet so often we find ourselves just sort of trumping through the ditch, falling back up, falling back up. Why is that? Because it is in that kind of life that God shows himself strong in our weakness. It's in that that God demonstrates his ability to do the impossible. What we in ourselves could never do. I'll never forget hearing the story of John Piper that when he was in college and then in seminary, he couldn't even get up in front of a group of people and give a little speech. And give a little speech, couldn't even do it. And on top of that, that he, he reads as fast as he speaks. I don't know if you've ever heard him do an interview on this, but he talks about how he couldn't even in college, he, would, he was deathly afraid of getting up in, people, in front of people. And now he preaches all over the place. Incredible preacher of God's word. For any preacher to look up to. For any preacher to desire, to learn from. And he's written all of these books, reading at that pace. Why? Why that? So that God might be glorified, not John Piper, so that God might be made much of. Because he knows, he knows in his heart every night he goes to bed that he could not have done that on his own with his slow reading and his inability to speak. But God did it. And that's what God wants to do in every single life of a Christian. He wants to show himself magnificently capable. And the only way he can do that is when we fall on our faces oftentimes and feel totally incapable. This is the God of the Bible, and it is essential for living the Christian life. These truths. He meets his people. He keeps his promises. He accomplishes his purposes. He establishes his praise. This is, as Alistair Begg would say, truth for life. This is truth for life. For life. 
And if we build our lives on anything other than the knowledge of the truth, to use Paul's words, the knowledge of the truth about this glorious God, our lives will be on sinking, sinking sand. Many churches are on sinking sand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask you, God, that you would be merciful to us in not allowing us to build on sinking sand. Our lives, our families, our church. God, we thank you for Four Corners Church. We thank you for the churches that we've been a part of throughout our lives and all of the ways that you have been patient with us, God. We know that, that we are frail in so many ways. But God, we know that you are a purposeful God, that you will hit the target for each of us and for this church. We know, God, that, you, that the gates of Hades will not prevail against the universal church, that your church will remain. God, we grieve over so much of the fluffiness and superficiality of the current American church. And we ask you, Father, to humble our hearts, all of us, that we would repent of this kind of feel-good Christianity, that we would turn back to you, the living God, that we would build our lives and our churches on the truth of Scripture, on who you are, on your character, on your dealings with man, and that as Abraham and Sarah, we would trust you out of your revelation. Father, thank you for this time today to meditate on this climactic passage. In Jesus' name, amen.